So chapter 7, verse 1, after the blessing was given on the previous chapter, we read this. Now it came to pass when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle that he anointed and consecrated it and all of its furnishings and the altar, all its utensils. So he anointed them and consecrated them. The tabernacle is ready to go. It's showtime for the kingdom of God. This tabernacle that we're told in Hebrews is a representation on earth of things in heaven. How exactly that's fulfilled, we don't know for sure. But God gave the tabernacle and eventually the temple and all that it encompassed, the tabernacle, the holy place in general inside the tabernacle and the holy of holies, that area where the Ark of the Covenant was that only Aaron the high priest could go into once a year on Yom Kippur. All these things we're told are a model of things in heaven. So from another dimension, eternity, God speaks and instructs these things, equips men supernaturally to build them and design them, the artistic design, everything they did, the showbread table, the altar of incense, and the light stand, and all that. Not to mention the Ark of the Covenant itself with the cherubim and the mercy seat and all those things. It's all in place. And it says here that Moses built it. He put it all together. It's all been put together. And then we're told he anointed it and he consecrated it. So we want to talk about this tonight because this is the beginning of the central place of worship for the people of God that is in place to this night here in this sanctuary tonight. Before this day in human history, while God was worshipped, where people built altars, like Noah built an altar, Abraham built an altar, Abel brought an offering, we're told, and God accepted it in Genesis chapter 4 in the primeval world just right after the fall. We see acts of worship. We see acts of faith. We see God revealing himself in dreams and visions and different things. But we never see until this day a central place of worship where God's people individually and collectively will come together to worship the Lord and meet with the Lord. We could say that this is the beginning of worship at the house of God. And this is the beginning where people of faith, beginning with the Mosaic Covenant and the children of Israel, would come and have this place where they met with God, personally, collectively, where they got things right with God, where they prayed, poured out their hearts before God, where they sang new songs. Because when it says in the Psalms to sing a new song, this is where they sang them. And this was the central place. For 1,500 years, this would be the central place. They would go from the tabernacle to eventually David wanting to build the temple about 500 years later, not being able to because the Lord said he couldn't because he's a man of war and a man of blood. But his son Solomon built the temple and David accumulated all the wealth and the necessary supplies to build the temple and then Solomon built it. And then that temple was a central place of worship for centuries for the nation of Israel. And even after the northern kingdom went into captivity, the 10 tribes of the north, 722 BC, the temple was still there in the south for another 150 years. It wasn't until 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar burned and destroyed the temple and took everyone captive like Daniel and Meshach, Sarek, and Abednego and those guys. But even when he took them captive, when Daniel was in captivity, when he was older and there was a threat against praying to any god other than the king, it was Daniel who opened his window in public display and faced Jerusalem where the temple was, which was his custom from his youth, three times a day. 
Because the temple was the central place of worship. It was like a burnt out church in Indonesia where the people of Jesus in a Muslim community that have been attacked and persecuted would still face that burnt out church as the flashpoint where they gathered together and worshiped the Lord before they were scattered in persecution. Very reasonable parallel analogy of what it would be like for Daniel. And then they came back from the captivity and they rebuilt that temple under Ezra. And when they laid the cornerstone, if you recall, the people shouted and the young people shouted because there was a future and a hope. And the old people shouted because it was so much less than the previous temple. So they're sobbing and weeping, shouting. And the young people are cheering and shouting. And the noise was a great tumult. And people didn't know if it was excitement for joy or excitement for sorrow, but was in fact ambos. It was both. That's what it was. And so that temple was rebuilt. Then Herod the Great fortified that temple. And then Jesus himself, when he was dedicated, where was he dedicated? At the temple. It was prophesied over him at the temple by Anna. Then Jesus, when he was 12, when he was missing, when his parents went back to uh, Nazareth, where did they find Jesus? He was in the temple. And what did he say? Did you not know I'd be about my father's business? Where was he about his father's business? It was in the temple. Shortly before Jesus went to the cross in that last week, Holy Week, Passion Week, it was there in the temple where he said, have you not read that my house will be a house of prayer, my father's house, but you have made it a den of thieves. And it was the central place of worship. It was the temple. And by that time, they had the dispersion of the Jews. So as the Jews went out into the Greek Roman world, they established little temples and they were called synagogues. And there are places of worship where the truth was taught in various communities throughout the Roman Empire with those wonderful Roman roads that connected the whole world to itself. Those Roman roads were amazing. And wherever you went, whether it was Corinth or Ephesus and these different important Roman cities, or even off the beaten track cities like Berea, you would find synagogues where people of faith of the Mosaic Covenant, Jews, would gather in their temple weekly, their synagogue, as a central place of worship. So even Jesus in Nazareth, when he went back to his hometown, there in the synagogue, he stood up and he read the text from Isaiah and said, this day, this passage is fulfilled in you. That synagogue was a central place of worship weekly for the people of faith in Nazareth. But three times a year, they go to the temple, and that was the central place of worship for them all. When the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost... Shortly after that, we read that they met daily in the temple. Now, they were Jewish believers primarily. They come from a Jewish background, originally the first generation. But they met in the temple, and they had their spot in the temple, Solomon's porch there. And they would meet at the temple, the central place of worship that they all identified with, and then they would meet house to house. So they met collectively in a large setting in the temple, and then they met house to house in smaller groups. And as they were persecuted and as they were scattered... And as Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas and the teams went out into the Roman world to share the good news, they would begin in synagogues. And quite often, the people in the synagogue would receive the gospel because Jesus is declared in the Old Testament, so it was a natural place to begin. Paul told us in writing to the Romans that the gospel is to the Jew first, then Gentiles. And so they would always begin in the synagogues because people would have an understanding of the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ, and Paul would prove that. And so sometimes there was fellowship with Jesus in the synagogue, but sometimes it was at the school of learning here or this house to house. And early on, that's how it was. Now, we know eventually, in spite of all the persecution for the first couple centuries under all those different Caesars, that Constantine committed his life to Christ in early 300 AD. 
And with the assistance of the Roman government, they began to build the churches. And so that, the buildings that we think of churches. And thus the Western world and into Europe and all these different things, especially when you get into like the Magna Carta, like 1200 AD, and then the subsequent European nations and then the Reformation and, you know, the Catholic Church kind of drove everything, but they had the Eastern Church, the Byzantinian Church in the East, which the Russian Orthodox Church comes from as well. And these, these churches that existed, the Eastern Church and the Western Church, they had their central place of worship and they built churches and they built buildings that glorified God as they understood God to be glorified. And even if you go back to Paul and John Crouch and they built the TBN Center over here, I went there one time to, for a TV show thing and I walked in and I was like, this is crazy, like, but what you have to understand, and I learned this that day. They're long gone. I think they're both in eternity. And I thought, like, why would you do this? It's so elaborate. But if you understood at least where they're coming from, they wanted a place that, that was glorious to the Lord. They wanted people to walk into a sanctuary. And believe me, of course, I'm not the biggest fan of that type of Christian example. But in their hearts, they wanted God to be glorified in that place. And even so, when I was going to get married, and my, my mom said, you need to get married in a real church. She wanted me to get married at St. Francis with all the stained glass windows and all that stuff. Because for her, those were connections of worship in a holy place. That's where you get baptized. That's where you have a wedding. That's where you get buried and have a wake and all these things. And, you know, when she found out I was going to get married at Calvary Chapel Vista, which, of course, I was, it was formerly the Happy Home Center. It was a garden center. And my mom, you know, my mom had... Yeah, I'm not having one over there right now. And of course, the biggest joke, you've known this, but when the first day of work, once they remodeled it all and she came to see my office, my office is exactly where the manure used to be. My mom thought that was very amusing for me to be a pastor in a church where my office was where that used to be in the Happy Home Center. But I used to tell her it's a Happy Home Center now because now it's holy ground. This belongs to the J- Jesus. And now this is a house of worship. This is a house where I'm going to get married. This is a house where we're going to bury my son. There's a house where we're going to dedicate our daughter, Hannah. And 885 East Fist Away no longer was Happy Home Center, but it was a holy place. It became holy ground for us individually, my wife and I, for our family. And it's still going strong to this day after the direction of Pastor Brian Broderson to Rob Salvato to this day. And you go there and it's a holy place. The church, of course, is people. But we gather in different places. So I gave you this history to understand you can go all over the world. And, you know, this is the tricky part because the central place of worship. You can see where I'm going with this, maybe. But you'll definitely know when I'm done where this is we're going to end up. But when you go around Europe, there's churches everywhere, right? When people used to visit America in the 1700s, 1800s, they say, what is the secret of America's success to be such an incredible country? And they'd say, the land is filled with churches. And what do we call these churches? We call them houses of worship. You know, right now with the COVID rating and the governor's rankings of red, purple, red, orange, yellow, we have, you know, your businesses, Joanne, like your whole business, what you, you know, uh, salons and stuff like that. That's a category. You know, the whole thing has been essential. All the surfers have said all along, surfing is essential. They have the mass surfing is essential. You know, to, to whatever you love to do, that's essential to you, right? And we had the church is essential. That was a big one. Well, if you look at the rating it's become easier to follow what's going on because it's called house of worship. I can know exactly where we stand as a church. See, in, in, in these rankings that we have in our state, it has all schools, theaters, all these different things, and has house of worship. That is how the governor in the state of California classifies us tonight. They classify us, and thank you for this, as a house of worship. A house of worship. 
Now, they'll classify that for a synagogue and a mosque, and that's fine because our society is freedom of religion, and the marketplace of thought allows us to present Jesus compared to Muhammad or Buddha or anyone else. Because our Jesus is the Lord, and he's the King of Kings. And so I welcome the marketplace of thought to show who Jesus really is. That's called tolerance, by the way, and I think we know that. So anyways, we're a house of worship. So here we are, 3,500 years after the tabernacle, this first day when Moses put it up, and we're an extension of collective corporate worship of people of faith. That's the journey we just covered. That's who we are tonight. We are an extension of this tabernacle. And what happened this day? We really are. As we gather in this building, this building's been here just a little over 50 years. Many of you remember when Shoreline celebrated their 50-year anniversary a few years ago. And it was fascinating to go in that gym and see all the pictures of 50 years of history and to see the uh, objections to the church being here. You know, a lot of people in the mid-60s were opposed to this church. There's always people opposed to churches. Like Alexander the coppersmith, Jesus, Paul said concerning him, he has caused us much harm, beware of him. There are people who cause the church much harm without power and with lots of power. And when this church was built, there were many people in power trying to keep this building from being built. But we're here tonight. We're here tonight. About 54 years later. I told you this before. First time I came to this building was in the 80s. I came up and did a chapel. I was asked to come do a chapel. I did a chapel. I taught right here doing a chapel about 89. Who would have known? You know, I'd be here for 17 years with you guys and worship generation. This is a house of worship. That's what this is. Now, we're the church, the people. Two or more. We're, well, as one, God, Jesus never leaves us. So we're one is the church, but two or more is that ecclesia, the church. That's who we are. But the building is important. We don't worship the building. And that's the mistakes a lot of past denominations make. And all we have to do is look at Europe to realize if you remove faith in Jesus and the blood and salvation and sanctification, you have empty buildings. And we all know, most of us know, that many of the churches in Europe have become mosques. Because people quit going to church, because people quit preaching Jesus is the Christ. The Holy Spirit quit being poured out because he wasn't honored and welcomed in the place. And so the Muslims came and they took over those buildings. And that's what you get. It just takes one or two generations not believing the gospel, not teaching the word and the whole counsel of God, and not believing the baptism, the power of the Holy Spirit, and being under the blood. And there you go. Some other thing will come in and take it over. The devil loves to do that. So the buildings, these beautiful buildings, I went all over Russia and saw these beautiful church buildings everywhere I went, these beautiful Eastern Orthodox buildings. I went to some that were like 500 years old. They're beautiful. They're very unique architecture. They're beautiful. I saw works of art from 1200 AD that the church people did back in the day. It's amazing to see this church history, the, the, the Last Supper, Joseph's dream, and all these different things. But that was then, this is now. And this church is still here Tonight, tomorrow, Shoreline Congregation will meet here. They'll be singing praise songs to the Lord. Pastor Matt will be teaching the word of God in context. And people will be living and dying, experiencing good news, bad news, getting new jobs, losing jobs, getting the college they want, being rejected for the college they want. Someone saying, yes, I'll marry you. And someone saying, no, I don't want to marry you. Right? Life happens. So when you look at the tabernacle and you look at the temple and you look at the church, and the central place of worship, we realize God has designed for us to come together to a common location that is a house of worship, a place of worship, to experience life individually and collectively for our family and our church family together, to share this human experience. And that this place, this building that we call home, 
would be a safe place. We always say with Calvary Chapel pastoral training, this, the sanctuary has to be a safe sheepfold. You have to always feel safe here. And in 17 years, we've had lots of things that would threaten your safety spiritually or even physically. And we have shepherds and we're aware of it, right? We've confronted many challenging things. It has to be a safe place, a secure place. It has to be a place where children are welcome, like we dedicated Dane tonight. Sometimes you, you, know, you want to pray with people after service and the kids are running around and it's a little bit loud. But think how it would be like, what it would sound like if the kids weren't running around. I've chosen a long time ago, I prefer to, to hear the kids running around the sanctuary after service and have to pray a little louder than not. Because they're the future and the next generation. And even as Garrett just read the whole thing from Deuteronomy, one generation proclaims his word to the next. And this is a safe place. It has been and continues to be and will be until maybe it's taken from us. I don't know. God forbid. That's why we're praying like there's no tomorrow this week because there could be no tomorrow. So we just got to take things reverently and seriously and appreciate everything we've had. You know, the church has come through everything, right? They lock our doors. They burn the churches down. They take away the central places of worship, but the church just keeps coming back. In the end, that's what happens. They board up, the, the, the Bolsheviks board up all those churches in Russia after this, they won the Civil War and defeated the White Army. And they board up all the churches and they made these priests, politicians, like their political positions. And, but in the end, like the people still believe in God and they were under that oppressive regime, the Soviet Union, for some 50 years. And in the end, as soon as the door opened up in the late 80s, the gospel went back and people went back to church. And it turns out the, lots of people... The church is the church. All those Calvary pastors are going to come together in Redeemer. Not, no kids this year. That's a tough one. That one hurts. But the pastors are still coming together with their wives. You know, we're supporting it. We are. Our tithes and offerings. That's who we are. They're the church. And they got a cute little sanctuary, Calvary Temple of Redeemer. They own the property, which is really rare for a church in Russia. And it's a place of worship. I've sat in their little sanctuary and they sing praises to the Lord, and they study the word, and they dedicate kids, and they do weddings, and they do funerals. We're the church, and this is our central place of worship. This is our legacy from the Lord, beginning with the tabernacle on this day with Moses to the day Jesus said, my father's house shall be called the house of prayer, and then died on the cross to, to birth this church. That's who we are. And this is why church is a topic, the building itself, worth talking about. Now, it says here, of so that's the history of the tabernacle to us tonight. The second thing I want to talk about is what Moses actually did after he put up the tabernacle, because people built this building 50 plus years ago in increments. He put it up, and the first thing he did was he anointed it. He anointed the church. Let's think of the, the tabernacle. Anointing in the Bible essentially always deals with the idea of God's spirit, his presence coming upon someone, as well as his power. When you, even to this day, if you say, wow, that was an anointed message, you would say, you're implying that the Holy Spirit, you saw, you heard the presence of the Lord, God spoke to you through that message. Like, wow, Pastor Greg's message was so anointed at the Harvest Crusade, and all those people went forward. Like, it was anointed. When we say that, when we use that terminology in this generation, we're saying that the power of the Lord was upon him and the presence of the Lord was felt through it. 
That's the idea of the anointing. And when they would anoint with anointing oil, it represented the power of the Lord coming upon them. It represented the Holy Spirit coming upon them. So when we, this term anointed, now we want to say of our life in general, personally, that we're anointed and, you know, consecrated. You want to have the power of the Holy Spirit and be set apart, which will be the final thing we get to in just a moment. But this is the tabernacle. This is a building. Now, as a building that had the presence of the Lord, because in the Holy of Holies, we know we're going to see in just a chapter or so ahead that the cloud, of, the cloud was there in the daytime representing the Lord's presence over the tabernacle and the pillar of fire by night. So the cloud by day, the fire by night. And he led them as he moved, they moved. And he moved from the place above the tabernacle. The anointing. He anointed it. It represents the presence of God and the power of God. And so when we come in this sanctuary, when we move forward from this thinking about us as a church, again, I can't emphasize this enough. The church is people, not a building. And I I know you, I think most of you understand where I'm coming from, but I'm emphasizing the value of coming together in a church building and why it is essential and why it is important and why we do revere this place. When we come in this place, when someone tells us we can't meet, then we do want to meet, don't we? And when someone tells you you can't sing in church, then you do want to sing. You know, ever since that happened, every time I miss a song at the start of service, like I was doing something back here, then the first song we check, I'm like, I'm missing a song. I'm willing to go to jail for singing in church. I might as well get out there and start singing. Or if I'm back here talking and it's the second song, I'm like, I got to get in there because I might go to jail for singing in church. I probably won't, but I could. So I want to make sure I'm singing when I can. The value of what we do in here. This anointed place. This is a place when we meet in this sanctuary that we want to come in faith. And we want to come with that personal faith in expectation to experience God's presence, the Holy Spirit, and his power. We want to experience his presence and power working in this place when we come in this place. Now, if you come in faith with expectation, the chances are much greater that you personally will sense God's presence and power. If someone comes in unbelief, I mean, how many people have sat in a Greg Laurie crusade and listened to Jeremy Camp and Toby Mack and Phil Wickham, a great gospel message, just walk out of there like they didn't get any of it? Well, it's like the parable of the soils. The bird just plucked it right out. We don't want to be those people. We want to have ears to hear what the Spirit says, for many are called and few are chosen. We want to hear, be called, and be chosen. And for the people who come in faith, And church is important, and church gathering is important for the individual, for their family, and for the body of Christ. Because we know in Romans 12 that God's given each one a gift, and Romans 1 Corinthians 12 tells us he's given each one a gift. And there's various ministries and diversities of ministries, but the gifts are given to the benefit of all. So each one of us has a gift, at least one, and when we come together, those gifts are working together to build up the body of Christ. Ephesians 4 tells us to be built up into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. So we do get the personal benefit, we get the family benefit, but we get the collective church family benefit as our gifts are here and we find our place and we function in our place in the local church. And so we come and we come to the place where we sense the presence of God, the Holy Spirit is here in the worship and we sense he's confirming the truth because the spirit The word of God pierces bone and marrow, soul, and spirit, and the spirit wrote the word, and the spirit goes where no man can go. That's why David said, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. And so we gather here just like the early church where it says they gathered around the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and that's what they did. 
and prayer. This ability to gather like this and have a service like this is so, it's just so essential to who we are and our identity. Now, if we can't gather, and we're like the church in Soviet Union back in the day, or in China right now, and you have to run from city to city and meet in homes and with threat of loss of everything, and then that's what it is. But if you can meet in churches, then we should. And we should value it, appreciate it, and esteem it highly. Church buildings and church services should be a place where there's the anointing, the the presence of God and the power of God. Now, it says in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus was in his glory, revealing himself to John there, and he introduces himself to the first church, the church of Ephesus, he had the vision and John had the vision, and then Jesus goes from that vision of chapter 1, and he says, I am the one that walks in the midst of the church. That's the thing he says to the first of the seven churches, Ephesus. Jesus says he walks in the midst of the church. And we know, we're told that where there's two or more gathered his name, he's with us. You know, Jesus is here right now. I mean, it's one thing to be an exciting political rally or a sports parade for winning a title. Jesus is here right now. And all things are made by him and for him, and him all things consist. And there's nothing made that wasn't made by him. And he is the preeminent one. And he's here. But we hear him, and we see him, and we experience him through the eyes of faith. His presence, his power. He walks in the midst of the church. And as we gather, we get to experience the human experience here. We get to have communion and make things right with the Lord that way if that's what we need to do. We get to pray with one another and build up one another in the house of God. We get to, uh, we get to express devotion through giving, if that's how we feel, like giving of our time and our energy, our resources. We get to sing songs. This is what, now, we can sing those in a home, yes, but the assembly in the church, it's, it's so special. We can pour out our hearts when we're going through hard times. The church is a place of comfort. I'll never forget when we lost our son, that year in Vista, I'd go in that sanctuary, and I just would just, all that emotion, you know, because we grieve. We grieve. And, and I'm still grieving from losing my mom. I'm grieving from losing my father-in-law. I'm still grieving. We grieve. And there's moments that just grief comes upon me. And I, when I know of other people who are grieving, sometimes I, I hear of something sad and sorrowful that other people have gone through. Even in our own church, we've had an experience like that recently. I even think about it. I just, I grieve. I start sobbing. It makes me so sad. But we're told to bear one another's burdens. We should rejoice when others rejoice, and we should feel sorrow when they sorrow. That's the church. You know, when Hannah, back in the Old Testament, she came to the tabernacle a couple hundred years after they're in the land, during the, after the time of Judges. That tabernacle was there in Shiloh. This, this tent, 300 years later, there it is, you know? And Hannah couldn't have children, and it was a, a blemish on her life. And she went to the tabernacle there in chapter 1, we read, and she was... In anguish of spirit, we're told. And she poured out her heart to the Lord. And she, she just gave it to the Lord. And she said, if you give me a son, we're going to make him a Nazarite. And this and that and everything else. And she was so expressive that Eli, the high priest, said, you've been drinking. No, I've not been grieving. Not drinking. I'm grieving. And this is an expression of my grief. And he said, well, the Lord bless you and hear your petition. And of course, two years later, she brought the toddler, Samuel the prophet, to the temple with his little ephod, his little robe, 
to grow up and serve the Lord and anoint the great King David. It's amazing. You see, from tabernacle to temple to church church sanctuary, this is where God's people of faith come together and we're real with God individually, we're real with God with our families, and we're real with God as a collective church family. That's what church is meant to be when we gather in this place. And when you look at churches, the body of Christ persecuted worldwide in places like, like radical places like the Middle East, Pakistan, Bangladesh, places like that, Indonesia, Philippines. When, when, when the church is attacked, they always attack the building. Syria, they, they, they attacked the building. You know, there's a, there's a lot of Christians. There's a lot of Arabic Christians that were in Syria. And there's a lot of them in Egypt still to this day, the Coptic church. And when the people get riled up against them, they always attack the building. The devil hates the central place of worship because when we come here and we sing songs of praise the Lord, the devil hates that. He hates it when we come together because as iron sharpens iron, so a brother and a sister are sharpening each other's countenance. You see, He wants us to feel like we're all alone and there's no one that thinks like us. There's no one that believes like us. But when we come together in this assembly and we praise Jesus together and sing in songs of faith about him and to him, it makes us stronger and we sharpen each other. The devil loves to destroy the building itself so he can destroy what really is the church, the people who come to that building. See, he can destroy a marketplace People just go to another marketplace. But what the devil's found, sometimes if you destroy the church, those people won't come back to church because they realize the cost is high. Why does God allow churches to be bombed? Why does he allow churches to be burned? Why does he allow suffering like Brother Lou in China and what he went through, the heavenly man? What? Bonhoeffer. Ivan Prokhanov, Russia. Why, why does... Did you ever ask yourself that? I mean, there's no real answer to it. Why is he allowing so many people in America to just leave church and not come back? I mean, let's be honest. Millions of people that were going to church at the beginning of the year are not going to church right now. They're not going to the house of worship. For whatever reason, God knows. And maybe God's just testing us all, like Gideon's men. Maybe he's just preparing us to find out. Maybe he's preparing us for who's really going to stand when we need to stand. Who's really going to be all in. I mean, if we're afraid of something that's equivalent as the flu, and that's going to keep us from coming to church, okay. If we're afraid that we're going to get thrown in jail, okay. I mean, faith and fear are opposed to each other. And if you want, if you have faith and you want to come to the house of the Lord and worship Jesus with his people and receive his word and be touched by the Holy Spirit, look, you can zoom all you want, but one thing you don't get through a zoom image is the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the power of his presence in a room. I've done zoom. I had a great time with you people doing it, by the way. I hope we never do it again in Jesus' name. It's clunky on its good day. That's not church. This is church. This is church. And the devil loves anything that substitutes the real thing for something artificial. This is church. We can't lose sight of that. 
And as people are scattered and wave after wave of fear keeps coming, don't let it keep you from church. Please don't. Please don't. I, I mean, all I can do is try and be faithful to be here two times a week to do what we do and bring in the worship leaders to lead us in worship and do my part. We're going to be the church until God's done with me and then the church will still go because obviously the church is bigger than anybody or anything. As long as I'm alive, I want you to come to this place and meet with God personally at the local church in faith and know that Jesus is in our midst and I want you to be able to cry out to him and hear him. And I want him to be in this place and hear you praising the Lord and have you receiving his word of truth by his spirit in your hearts. And to that end, I'm going to stand here until this, until this, until this thing is done, this life of mine. And I'm going to try and raise up people like Sam and Alex and others to do the exact same thing. We're the church. And we're going to support people like people in Russia or people around the world that have faced different things. We're going to support them as well. You know, we've been supporting Voice of the Martyrs for years. Well over two decades now, Voice of the Martyrs. You know, we, we support people that lose everything. And they take, they take their churches, then they take their homes. And we stand with those people. It's, you know, we, we did so much for the Middle East the last four or five years. And to see the pictures that you don't get to see, declassified photos. I've seen classified photos that you would never see on laptops in other places of what the church has been through in the Middle East. And there's still people there with multiple death threats on them still gathering in their burnt-out church buildings in the Middle East right now. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? And we got people chirping for two weeks straight on Instagram because they can't shut their mouth as if their opinion's the only thing that matters and that's all they can think about. Don't be that kind of person. Faith over fear. Light over darkness. Kingdom over hell. And that's what we get at church. It was the psalmist who said, I would have lost heart until I went into the house of the Lord and then I remembered the end of the wicked. And I said, why did I even think like this? Because the end of the wicked is bad, but the end of the righteous is good. And that's a reminder of every time we come here and we open his word. We want to be the people that hang out where the tabernacle is with the anointing and the consecration. And the consecration is to be set apart. And the church is set apart. A number of pastors have said in the last six months, to say that church is essential is degrading to the church. It's like putting the church on the same level as retail business. Nothing against retail business because most of us make a living in some form of retail or manufacturing. Church is essential? How demeaning. Oh, we're equal to you know, box stores. We're equal to casinos. Or how about like Nevada where the governor says, casinos are essential, abortion clinics are essential, but churches are not essential. Like, <laughs> that's what you get. If you try and say, hey, we're equal to casino and abortion clinics, we're essential, that's what you get. You get some politician saying, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're not essential. Casinos are essential, and abortion clinics are essential in the state of Nevada. But you see, you never have heard me come up here and say, like, hey, we're essential. We're as important as anything else. No, we're the church. I don't need to say that. Jesus doesn't need you to defend him, and I don't need to go up here and tell you the church is the most important thing on the planet because you already know that because the church is the most important thing on the planet. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. This is the most important thing on the planet. You, not the building, you, the people. Christ died for us and shed his blood for us to redeem us. We are his bride, and there's a glory coming and a wedding feast coming. And I don't need to lower myself and try and convince some governor or president or prime minister anywhere saying, we're essential. 
Forget that. We're the church. We're under the blood, and we've got tongues of fire. And when Jesus says he's done, he's done. Until then, we've got to keep being the church, and we can't live in fear. The church is consecrated. We are set apart. We are set apart. And once the Lord commits something to his own ownership, it becomes holy ground. And that's kind of interesting about Calvary Chapel. Because all these Calvary chapels, like Jeff Johnson up here, you know, that was formerly a, like a, a Sears or something like that. And, you know, Calvary Vista was a happy home center. And I mean, Calvary Chapel was a front runner in the late 80s and 90s to get the storefront properties to make churches out of them. We kind of led the way with that. And then the secret churches kind of did the same thing. And then, you know, then people got stadiums and made those churches too, stuff like that. But that's kind of one of the funny things about Calvary Chapel. We had all that music coming from the Maranatha music back in the day. And this freedom, like Raul Reese and his original church there in West Covina was like a strip mall shopping center. I remember going there like, wow, this is something at Manna for today. This is Raul Reese's church. This is awesome. You know, it's like, and then I'm like, kind of like not my neighborhood, right? When I get in, it's like, oh, hey, surfer boyfriend, San Diego is a different, West Covina is a different crowd, you know? So it's like, <laughs> you know, no, but we showed Sunriders there back in 88 and it was awesome. We make things holy. See, Costco can buy property and build something or can flip to Big Five or something. And it is what it is. Costco's not holy ground. Whole Foods isn't holy ground. Target's not holy ground. Those are stores. The new Charger, Ram Stadium, that's not holy ground. It's just a stadium. It's entertainment. Bella Terra, if it's ever open again, that's not holy ground. It's just a theater. Unless a church goes in there, which they've done in the past, and make it holy ground for what they're doing. This is holy ground. This is consecrated. See, at Costco, they live and die buying food at a good price, whatever, or a discount bulk, right? In this place, I've watched kids sing to the Lord. I've done memorials and weddings and dedications and communion and all the worship. And it's interesting the church is like, it's kind of silly, so bear with me, but church is like being a season ticket holder for a baseball team. This season goes on forever. And we're season ticket holders. Like, you, we're all right where we, where we be, you know? A big Calvary used to sit where people sit just to get a reaction from, oh, I know, uh, it's like that kind of person. But we have our spots we like. You notice I changed my season tickets? I was over here and I moved over here now. I'm kind of like, I went from first base side to third base side. I'm getting, I'm getting a different view over here. Something funny about your season ticket holder, right? It's 162 games, so you see like 81 games if you go to all of them. You know, your worst fear as a season ticket holder is to miss the no-hitter, right? Or someone hits for the cycle. Like, oh, no, again, you had season tickets for 30 years. Like, the Padres finally throw a no-hitter, and I'm not at Petco. Like, ah, oh, curse it. Hey, well, you know, that can happen with the Lord. How about this year, Jack's worship of the last service, March 14th, before COVID? Do you remember that night? Hey, that night was very special. If you were here March 14th, you know the fear, the run on all the food, and Jack was up here. We were praising. We were worshiping. That night was really special with the Lord. His presence, his power. It was consecrated. It was a holy place. How about when Joe Henschel came back for the first time in seven years, a month and a half ago? It's like, whoa. Like that was the, that Tuesday night was, the Saturday was great too, but that Tuesday night was like, wow. The Lord just came. 
See, church is special. It's consecrated. God's going to do things here that he does not do at Costco and Target. Because this is where we come to worship him. We shop at Costco and Target. We worship and pray and praise his name in the sanctuary. This is a holy place. It's consecrated. So it's anointed, his presence and his power, and it's consecrated. It's set apart. This is set apart. This, this is why, by the way, that's why Pastor Chuck never liked anybody selling anything on the property at Calvary Costa Mesa. When we had worship generation and the bands would come with their stuff, their, their merch, as they called it, hey, you gotta go to the bookstore because my house not be a house of merchandise. And when we had WG back at Big Calvary, people all the time like, hey, I got this new Christian t-shirt brand, this and that. Can I, can I pass out? Nope. Nope, there's no merchandising here. This is, this is consecrated. This is all about Phil Wickham leading worship, Tim Chaddock leading worship, Scott Cunningham, Bobby Brown, Joe Tida. This is, a, this is a house of worship. This is not a house of, we never, you know. I mean, there's a place for that stuff, I understand, but Chuck knew where it was, right there down by the bookstore and all. It's consecrated. It's consecrated. And I close with this thought. When I was on staff for five years at Calvary Coast, especially a large church like that, being raised the way I was raised, I went to so many different, like, Catholic churches around the world with my parents, with my mom particularly. Yeah, I look at stained glass windows and stuff. I, I, for some reason, that did connect with me. And at Calvary Costa Mesa, Chuck, Chuck, you know, it's just a sanctuary. It's a humble sanctuary, right? It's a humble sanctuary, but it's a holy place. Calvary Costa Mesa is consecrated. You know, when I asked Pancho Juarez to fill in for me for the first time at Calvary Costa Mesa, he was in tears. He got saved there. And he got to go back and be in Pastor Chuck's pulpit in 2003, filling in for me. He still invites me up to his church to this day. But like, to him, it was a consecrated thing. Like, hey, I'm in Pastor Chuck's pulpit. This is not Costco or Big Five. This is Calvary Costa Mesa. The house Chuck built, right? Like the legacy. All when I was on staff, the phone calls, the people coming in all the time, the needs, the people, the memorial service. I always remember Trevor Renee's memorial after he died in the war. Gosh, it was so sad, former student at the school. And then the weddings, and there's always weddings and always memorials going on there. People trusted it. 9-11 is my closing thought on this. When 9-11 happened, I've told this story many times, but on 9-11, I was there, and people came by the thousands that day, the next day, for the National Day of Prayer, that Sunday, people came from all over by the tens of thousands to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and Pastor Chuck led the church, led the movement. Why didn't they go to Costco? Why didn't they go to Target? Why didn't they go to the Big A? Why didn't they go to the Coliseum? Why didn't they go to see the professors at USC or UC Irvine? Why did they come to Calvary, Costa Mesa? Because it's a church, and it's a holy place. It's anointed, and it's consecrated. That's why. They came to have their fears alleviated. They came to have their faith strengthened, and to have their vision clarified with hope. And they came to pray and to confess, and to honor the Lord. One of my greatest greatest privileges in ministry, the week of 9-11 at Calvary Costa Mesa. So tonight, Body of Christ, WG, it's just a good reminder It's a privilege to come to this building from the Lord, not me, from the Lord. It's a privilege to come here and sing praises to him and sing new songs. It's a privilege to see one another, to wave, bump elbows, whatever, hug, whatever you're comfortable with. 
It's a privilege to pray with one another. We're the church, and uh, we, the people, are the church, but this is where we come together. May God strengthen our faith to keep coming together and just trust in him in all things, not just for this anointed and consecrated place, but for everything that life has for us. Because Jesus is Lord, and he didn't die on the cross to save us from our sins and rise from the grave to justify us and give us hope to leave us trembling in fear in this human experience that he promised to give us joy and abundant life in.